We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 104 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. As I indicated last week, uh, I was going to be away, so what I've done is pre-recorded an episode for you, and I've basically grabbed bits and pieces from a few old episodes and cobbled them together for you for this episode 142. So as we go through the various bits and pieces, I'll just give a little intro as to where they've come from, which episode, and therefore if you want to look up any of the links that are referred to, you can find them there. So anyway, the first little clip that's going to come up is from episode 57. Now, Scott, I found an article which is one of my favourite of very re- of recent times. I quite like this one, which is titled "Science Explains Why America Is Going Off the Rails," and it introduces a word called. Now, I'm probably going to get the pronunciation wrong. It's it's spelled A S A B I Y A, which could be Asabia or Asabia. I'm going to go for Asabia. I had no idea how to pronounce it, but anyway, mm. yeah. It's an Arabic word meaning group solidarity. Uh, in a community with Asabiya, everyone is willing to contribute without being coerced. In the US, people were willing to invest so heavily in the nation because, for the most part, each of us felt committed to the country. And more importantly, we were confident that everyone else felt committed too. So... So that's the central notion that this article is going to explore, is this, this idea of, of a common purpose where people work together and cooperate. And, um, okay, so you need to sort of have that in the back of your head. And it's a little bit lengthy, this article. Mm. Um, but I think it's really worth exploring. Um, it talks about the US context, and it certainly can transfer to Australia. So there'll be a, a fair bit of quoting here, but... I really, really think it's worthwhile, um, particularly, Scott, because we mentioned in the past, like, um, one of the problems with secularism, atheism, anti-theism is we're sort of knocking religions, but they do perform a role in a tribal sense of getting people together and people enjoy the social aspect of religion, and we're not replacing it with anything. And I did read that, and that was the first thing that came into my mind was we're not offering anything that was replacing that. You yeah. know, we're just, um, we're just out mocking it. Yeah. And, yeah. It's, and it's important. So, okay, so this article, feel free to interrupt whenever. But um, so, why are politics in the US so messed up? Why are we in genuine danger of electing Donald Trump? Uh, a growing number of scientists think that religious rituals and beliefs are a kind of social glue that encourages people to cooperate and commit to social norms and expectations. The data on religion and cooperation will continue rolling in for decades, but at this point the empirical case is pretty clear. Religion actually does play a critical role in promoting cooperation within societies. Above all, religion seems to generate parochial altruism. That is, believers genuinely, sorry, believers generally help in-group members only. Um, 
newspapers remind us daily that religion's track record at, ex- at establishing ties between groups isn't so hot. So religion's very good at getting cooperation by believers within the group. Uh, in other words, religion is socially adaptive but objectively amoral. It helps humans survive by helping groups function and by defining group boundaries so that people know who to cooperate with. I think that's fair enough. It is fair enough, yeah. yeah. It sort of yeah. helps organise I didn't find people. anything in that that um, I disagreed with, so uh, it made perfect sense. So yeah. I, agree with, I agree with that so far. Now, what it says is in this article that the United States is a bit unusual because it was such a hodgepodge of different groups that came together in the United States that didn't have um, a particular shared um, religion, for starters, or, um, or philosophy. But what they did was they created a new sort of American patriotism and civic pride, um, created symbols such as the flag, etc., and, and forged a new shared identity um, based on, on being American and saying that um, that was the group that, that they created which had a real sense of um, oh, the collective group about it where people were willing to commit and do things for the country because they felt confident that the rest of the country, everyone else in the country was prepared to do the same, like mutual sort of uh, cooperation in that sense. Well, it was cooperation, it was cooperation wasn't it? Mm. So the example yeah. is a bit like a, a school project. Um, uh, if your fellow members are slackers, you get resentful and you cut back on how much you're prepared to do. But if your team members are go get them, uh, then you lift your game and match them as well. So it's that sort of theory, in a sense. Uh, so the United States had a broad civic culture. And this article says that that... And, and that broad civic culture is a form of acerbia. Basically saying that's now in decline in the USA. Uh, there's not that shared commonality. So a coastal liberal couldn't stand to be associated with an unfashionable rural people. And, uh, you know, the South are very different to the North. And I've said this before, like, in America, you know, somebody in, you know, San Francisco is so different to somebody in the Deep South that they may as well be from two different countries. Like, they really are different people. Mm. Um, And you've also got inequality, which is also making... uh, distinctions between people in terms of uh, rich and poor and um, and what it's saying is that uh, it no longer feels like everyone is on the same team working together so people withdraw from social consensus and become less willing to sacrifice for the collective the collective pool starts to shrink that all makes sense so far People sort of retreating back to their sort of individual groups, and um, and uh, oh, the other thing about inequality is um, people going to sort of Ivy League universities are encouraged um, by their educators to be individualistic, um, extremely analytical, um, 
resistant to social obligations and to disrupt and innovate, um, as opposed to the working class who uh, who are encouraged to basically toe the line and do what you're told because that's how manual work gets done efficiently. So um, that was you know, interesting aside there. But um, so. W- comes to the conclusion that our shared emotional commitment to the collective has been replaced by more narrow interests and different factions of society are pitted against each other. It's the perfect petri culture for a populist nativist demagogue like Donald Trump to arise and wrest power from the dissent and the um, from the decent and the educated. Um, I think that's a really interesting sort of overall look at society that you know when everybody is around the same level kind of you look at everybody you think yep they're doing about the same as me I can count on that guy to sort of be like me um, think the same way the collective works a lot more efficiently and when it breaks down into um, very different groups uh, it's hard for people to to commit to the collective in that situation if they don't feel that everyone else is pulling in the same direction and it's bang on the money isn't it Hmm. you know it it makes the point in there that with inequality that abyssinia has been in retreat and it's getting it is really i'm loath to say it but i think you're right we do tend to follow the united states a decade or two behind them and, you know, the, the way our government conducts itself and, you know, the, the, going back to the private health insurance, Scott Morrison saying that, you know, we just got to get more competition and blah, 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 blah. Oh. It won't be long before we are just like the eggs. Yep. And I mean, well, Pauline Hanson is, is the case of this. I mean, she's getting the, the disgruntled and the disenfranchised. I mean, you know... People in Gladstone, for example, or um, that sort of small manufacturing, the people who are losing jobs because we just don't offer that type of work anymore. And realistically, it's very hard for them to, you know, they can't all be baristas. Um, Mm. uh, You know, if we're going to drop segments of the society, then those segments are going to say, well, you know... They're going to break away from that that collective feeling. So we're going to break down into small groups and those groups are going to be fighting against each other, basically. At different times on the podcast, we come across some words we've never heard of before and we like to expand our vocabulary. It's one of those things that tickles our fancy. And in this episode, well, this clip from episode 58, we examine the word retcon. Scott, have you heard of the term retcon, R-E-T-C-O-N? No, I haven't, actually. Yeah, no. One of our things that our podcast is turning into, Scott, is a little bit of sort of a vocabulary expansion for you and I and, <laughs> and the dear listener. Like we're learning new words, aren't we? We are, you know. I mean, hmm. it's, um, we're on the back of the, uh, of the uh, cisgender and all that sort of stuff. It's yes. great. yeah. yeah. Um, and all those other ones that we were talking about, nihilist and all the rest of it uh, from the other show. So, yeah. anyway, in order to understand the next article, you need to understand the word retcon, R-E-T-C-O-N, and it typically applies in the case of a 
film or television series or fictional work. Mm-hmm. A new a new piece a piece of new information that imposes a different interpretation on previously described events, typically used to facilitate a dramatic plot shift uh, or account for an inconsistency. So, you know, you might be watching a television series and, and a certain actor dies and you know yeah. but but then what it turns out was it was just a dream and so the actor is still alive and continues on. So what you're watching, um, uh, you get a different interpretation on it once you receive, you know, new information. Mm, so that's okay. a that's a retcon. Right here. So this um, little piece that I found was um, talking about um, the Jewish faith. Oh, the three Abrahamic faiths: the Jews, the Christians, and the and the Muslims. And uh, what it says is, um, think of it like a movie. The Torah is the first one. And the New Testament is the sequel. Then the Quran comes out and it retcons like the last one never happened. There's still, <laughs> there's still Jesus, but he's not the main character anymore. And the Messiah hasn't shown up yet. <laughs> then goes on. Jews like the first movie, but ignore the sequels. Christians <laughs> think you need to watch the first two, but the third movie doesn't count. Muslims think the third one was the best. Oh, I like this one. And Mormons liked the second one so much that they started writing fan fiction that doesn't fit in with any of the series <laughs> canon. <laughs> That's great. When I talk to people about my podcast and my experience with it, um, one of the things I sometimes say is that it actually... Um, it took quite a while before I felt we hit our straps and I reckon it was probably around episodes in the 60s where we started to produce some stuff which in my humble opinion dear listener was not too bad so uh, here's another one well here's one that's from episode 66 looking at um, whether democracy actually works Mm. on the topic of democracy I really like this article as well this is a thought-provoking one uh, it's about a book. So there's a guy called George Monbiot, M-O-N-B-I-O-T, and he has done a little book review about a book that was looking at um, democracy. And um, he's, uh, you know, the sort of thesis of the book is, is what if democracy doesn't work? And uh, he's talking about, you know... Donald Trump's ability to shake off almost any scandal. And then in the Philippines, we've got Rodrigo Duterte, who gleefully compares himself to Hitler. And, you know, there's all sorts of other instances around the world where you can say democracy doesn't seem to be working. And uh, Yeah, it's true. It, it's true. There has been some extremists that have got up, but... Mm. Uh so in this book, they, have, uh, they talk about a folk theory of democracy, where the idea that citizens make coherent and intelligible policy decisions on which governments, uh, uh, and he's saying it bears no r- relationship to how it really works or could ever work. He says, um, voters can't possibly live up to these expectations. Many are too busy with jobs and families and troubles of their own. 
when do we have time off? Not many of us choose... When we do have time off, not many of us choose to spend it sifting competing claims about the fiscal implications of quantitative easing. Even when we do, we don't behave as the theory suggests. So this would be true, Scott. Like, people don't have time. You and I are... In oh, your words, we crazy. Are the, we we're, we're, are the freaks. We, we, we are, are the freaks. We're the outliers. Yeah, yeah we for are. sure. But most people, like, but, you can talk to, I, you know, a recent trip up to Cairns, different friends of my wife, conversation would turn to different things. And, you know, I might even mention submarines and say, hey, what do you reckon that submarine decision? They go, I don't know. I can, hmm. But just generally, people don't have time. These are well-educated, well-meaning citizens who are, but people don't have time. So that's true. Uh, the people that's don't why have they the time. Listen, to, they should get their news distilled through the iron fist and the velvet glove. That, that is what we—that <laughs> is what we're trying to do. Yes. Um, so the idea of rational choice happening by the electorate uh, isn't happening. Um, he says that uh, in their research, these authors have found most people possess almost no useful information about policies and their implications. They have little desire to improve their state of knowledge and have a deep aversion to political disagreement. Um, we base our political decisions on who we are rather than what we think. This is, again, a bit of that identity politics stuff, but um, we have a deep aversion to political disagreement. This is true as well, particularly in Australia, I think, Scott. Like, my daughter is scared witless that when I go down to her place at Christmas and meet her boyfriend's family, that I'll just start... I'll just start <laughs> ranting on about religion. <laughs> the fact, the fact that they're Lebanese will be sorely tempting to me. <laughs> Relax, dear listener. Lebanese Christian, at least. But, um, but that you know, I'm well. I told her, don't worry, you know, I don't necessarily have to talk religion at all times, but I tell you what, I'm going to give it a good crack while I'm there, because that'll be fascinating. <laughs> but but she, she, like many others, has a deep aversion to political disagreement. Um, so, uh, in other words, we act politically not as individual rational beings, but as members of social groups expressing a social identity. We seek out political parties that seem to correspond best to our culture with little regard to whether their policies support our interests. You know, shifts occasionally happen. New parties might position themselves as better guardians of a particular cultural identity. So if that's true, Scott, we as a secular party need to be encouraging people to join us because as an identity issue of identifying with us as a group, and it really wouldn't matter what, to some extent, crackpot policies we might have, you know, lurking in our website, if it's just a... a the, the, people with limited time, it's about creating an identity and um, that people could want to be part of. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I mean, it's um, yeah, it's. Uh, I would like to think that we've got a more of our mind on the policy rather than uh, our mm. identity. Mm. However, I think you're probably right. But you've got to create. Uh, we have to create a. You get a, a cultural identity. Of a, yes. Mm. Yes, or, or an identity of something that people can 
identify with and be part of a group as much as that's a good idea and that's a good idea and that's a shit idea. It's more like, actually, that's a really, that's a group I can work with. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, also says that uh, we are suckers for language. When surveys asked Americans, um, well, they asked them two questions. Um, whether the federal government was spending too little on assistance for the poor, and they also asked them whether the government was spending too little on welfare. Basically the same thing. But when it came to the government spending too little on assistance for the poor, 65% agreed. But when it was about, you know, do you agree that the government is spending too little on welfare, only 25% agreed. It was just a matter of language. Exactly. Uh, And that is is one of the really... That's really just points to you, doesn't it? mm, Got to keep it simple. And, you know, in the Gulf, in relation to the 1991 Gulf War, uh, they asked, again, Americans... Uh, whether they were willing for America to use military force, and they also asked them whether they were willing to go to war. Mm. And uh, military force sounded much nicer, comparatively, and two-thirds were happy with that, uh, but less than a third were willing to go to war, just based on the language. Mm. Um, Now, what it uh, comes to here is you would think the obvious answer is better information and civic education makes sense but this doesn't work either according to these authors and i really like this next bit so um they asked uh moderately informed republicans were more inclined than republicans with the least information to believe that bill clinton oversaw an increase in the budget deficit uh, in fact it declined massively okay so you've got let's call them educated republicans versus non-educated republicans and the educated ones were more likely to believe that clinton was running um deficits when instead he was running surpluses yeah so the question is well how how could that be why would the why would the more educated ones be getting that wrong and the answer was because unlike the worst informed the better informed ones knew that Clinton was a Democrat (laughs) (laughs) and just made the assumption then that he was running deficits. Deficits, yeah. Uh, The tiny number of people with a very high level of political information tend to use it not to challenge their own opinions but to rationalise them. So so there we go. Even uh, lots of good ideas in that book. Very American-centred and the uh, examples are a little bit old but some interesting thoughts on democracy. Coming up is a review of our little excursion to a Hillsong service at Mount Gravatt in Brisbane, and this is from episode 67. Last week we hinted that um, uh, we were going to go on a bit of an excursion to a Hillsong performance, and mm-hmm. Scott, you were a last-minute cancellation, but I, I was went. a last-minute cancellation. Yes. Yeah. So I went with uh, the Twelfth Man and with Deep Throat, and yep. um, fascinating, really fascinating. <laughs> so we, we went last Sunday to the nine thirty session of Hillsong uh, at Mount Cravat in Brisbane, and first of all, massive car park full of cars, like. Lots of cars. 
Yeah. Uh, walk into the place. It's a big place. And at the door, a couple of guys greeted us, a couple of older guys. You know, yeah. how are you going? Shook our hands. Welcome. First time here. Blah, blah. Um, you know, welcome to the family sort of introduction. Uh, yeah. Then um, made a few jokes. It was all very friendly and welcoming. Inside, there were a number of little um, sort of uh, espresso coffee machines running at different places. There was a little kitchen there doing sort of toasted sandwich stuff for free. You had to pay for your espresso. But um, then, uh, so we had a bit of a look around. There was a bookshop doing a roaring trade, like... Yeah. They were selling DVDs and music of Hillsong performances. And, you know, there was a crowd of 20 people lined up. And I was trying to see the prices of the videos, and there were no prices on anything. Like, people were just lining up and buying the stuff, presumably not even knowing how much it cost. They were just, they were just spending their money. Yeah. Uh, in another separate building, a very large building, they had um, childcare facilities. So they had three different age groups of for different kids where you drop your kids off and you can then attend the service and they'll be looked after and um, entertained. And the kids presumably and get indoctrinated in, at the same time. Do I they? don't. Well, I, I can't say that. It did seem to be a lot of jumping castles and blowing bubbles and various other activities that kids would enjoy. In that area, I don't know that there was a lot of um, proselytising going on, to be fair. Okay. But um, then uh, we went inside, massive auditorium. Twelfth Man thought it would probably hold about 1,500 people, and I think there was about 1,100 in there. And Mm -hmm. um, uh, about a seven-piece band, rock band playing, and six singers in front. And, look, it it was that evangelical hill song sort of songs that all of the words were subtitled on a big screen so the screen would show the faces of various singers and the a bit like karaoke the words were there for people to sing along and yeah. lot, lots of people did and yeah. um uh so yeah singers um all fresh-faced wholesome good-looking um, <laughs> obligatory Asian, um, obligatory black guy, um, uh, evenly split, three girls, three guys, um, even in the band, a couple of Asians, black guy. It was a real racial mix on stage and also actually a real racial mix in the auditorium. Significant number of Asian people, uh, Polynesian, um, all sorts, just you know, based on skin colour and, and clothing or whatever, quite a strong diversity of, of ethnicities there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the program itself, um, lots of singing to kick off with, like must have been 20 minutes of singing um, by this rock band. Um, really good drummer, really good bass player. I was, I was sort yeah. of getting into the drums and the bass and... Um, <laughs> But the words were just inane, you know. They were just, Jesus, I love you, and Jesus, you love me, and you gave yourself up on the cross for me, and, and we'll, you know, the sun's shining and the birds are singing and Jesus, I love you. And it just one inane line after another, but that just didn't mm. matter. People were busting out the lyrics. Um, 
uh, and then there was a bit of a um, uh, call for donations past the bucket round um, uh, then there was the word where this guy read some scripture how much and, did you put in that bucket uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't put any I just passed the bucket on the 12th man was the 12th man was very clever he because on your seat as you sit down there's a um, there's an envelope a donation envelope that you can either write you know a credit card donation or you can put money in and um, right. the 12th man he cleverly just put an empty envelope into the bucket so, <laughs> so he knew what he was doing um, uh, then there was the word where the guy read from some scripture and gave a really strange parable um, uh, that that went on but he was very smooth I felt 12th man and um, and Deep Throat thought he was a bit sort of going through the motions but I thought he was quite clever and did a really good job and then at the end some lady came on and um, she almost got a bit spiritual she at one point said uh, she pointed to a couple in the third row and said, uh, this couple here in the third row, the man in the blue shirt and the lady in the white blouse, you are a couple, aren't you? And they, they said, yes. And she said, I just have this feeling. I just have this feeling that that you're looking for, for answers, but, but God has, Jesus has got them for you. And I have this feeling that great things are ahead for you. And and whatever you're thinking about, just go ahead and do it or something like that. It was kind of spiritual fortune telling she sort of crossed over into just she'd had this sense out of the whole crowd that these people needed her special attention and um lots of welcoming family stuff and um a bit more music in the end and we all piled out but i reckon you know as we walked out in the in the uh in the car park there were half a dozen volunteers i mean in the inside the auditorium there was a dozen ushers there was video people audio people like there had to be 80 to 100 volunteers there um, when you combine and add them all up it was a phenomenal business and enterprise of people so yeah so dear listener I found it quite interesting and as an excursion for a secularist or an atheist just to see what's going on in the world with and the and the delusion that people were willing to subject themselves to like uh, yeah it was a very interesting exercise and uh, and if there's a Hillsong in your area go along one Sunday and have a look but (laughs) such a clever operation such big operation like we are such minnows in the scheme of things of of influencing (laughs) things but um one thing i do remember was uh uh they were saying oh don't forget um everyone wednesday night is men's night we've got a special men's night function pastor brian houston will be coming along um ladies if your man comes to this night, he's gonna he's gonna worship Jesus more, and he's gonna worship you more. And who doesn't want that, hey? Hey, who doesn't want that? And all the ladies in the audience are going, "Yeah, I want my man to worship Jesus more. I want my man to worship me more." And uh, and um, so yeah. So then a guy came on and said, "Guys, it's gonna be great on Wednesday night. Like it's a men's only night. It's a men's night with Pastor Houston." It's going to be great. I can't tell you too much. 
I'll give you a little bit of a drip feed. You know, just one thing to sort of get you going. There's going to be a boxing ring. <laughs> We're going to have some boxes. <laughs> there's going to be a fight with some boxes. There's going to be bacon. There's going to be, there's going to be chicken wings with hot sauce. And... <laughs> It's not going to be good for your arteries, he joked, but you're going to love it. Like, and, and we're going to worship Jesus, and we're going to be better men. So that's Wednesday night, uh, tomorrow night, Scott. <laughs> if no, I don't think I can make it. <laughs> oh, okay. It's just around the corner from you. You're, you live perilously close to that place. I, I do live perilously close to it, but no, I don't think I can make yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> so, um, so there you go. That was our hill song. That was song amazing, experience. though, wasn't it? I mean, very eye-opening, and, and the numbers of people and the money involved and the production, and yeah, very, very enlightening. So, Well, what I found incredible from that mm. story was the mm. bookshop. Mm. You said there were just people lined up out the front to go in there it, and mm. you know they must be making a fortune out of it mm. it could be because they've just released a new song and they announced in the uh in the thing that that song is uh number three on itunes in australia and number one itunes in america or vice versa actually it may be number one in australia and number three in america on itunes like Bloody Goodness hell. sake, yeah. So they had a new song out, so that might have been why the bookshop or the, the, the sort of gift shop was particularly busy. But yeah, man, oh man, still pe- that's really yeah, they were just selling bucket loads. So I, I, I said to Deep Throat, I can't think of a business on a Sunday morning where you've got no price tags and you've got people piled out the door, yeah, trying to get in to buy. It was phenomenal. So, mm. so there you go, uh, dear listener. Rock along to a Hillsong event and just have a look at what we're up against. Yeah. <laughs> um, also got a chance during all that to have a bit more of a conversation with Deep Throat, and he was telling me about his episode with you with David Van Gend at that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and how yeah. Uh, he actually got hold of the microphone during that. Yeah. And there was a bit of he a did, Q&A. Yeah. And uh, he actually started asking some pointed questions. And Mm. David Van Gend had given this metaphor of of the non-religious forces being like like rats in a chicken coop. Yeah, um, exactly. And uh, Deep Throat said, well, that's not a very nice description. You know, that's (laughs) painting a pretty ugly picture. And... um, and they tried to get the microphone away from, from Deep Throat, but he, but he yeah. hung on to it and, and figured while he had the microphone, they couldn't shout above him. So the guy That's true. But David Van Gen, when he went to ask another follow-up question, David Van Gen said to him, no, no, I've already answered your question, so move on. Right. Okay. <laughs> Still, once again, from episode 67, an article from Kenan Malik regarding multiculturalism, and that's probably the foundation of a lot of our thoughts, or my thoughts, on multiculturalism, at least. We, last week, I think, introduced people to Kenan Malik and his views on multiculturalism, and I found another article about it from him, which I'll give a bit of a crack of explaining, I think, because um, I think this whole... Um, Excuse me, multiculturalism, culture, the 
the notion of it is really important in this battle of religious ideas. It's all intertwined, so we need to be conversant about our views on uh, multiculturalism uh, if we're going to, you know, not get tied up in debates. So, uh, first of all, we need... uh, uh, Do I need that for this part here? I think I'll delay that bit on postmodernism, but... um, Okay, KenMalik.com, uh, 12th man like this stuff. He's actually bought some books as a result, so he's going to be an expert on it. But um, rehash, multicultural, means two things. So it defines a society that is particularly diverse, usually as a result of immigration. So that's one meaning. The second one is the political policies necessary to manage such diversity. And those policies typically encourage groups to stay separate. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, so you've got multiculturalism as the sort of result of immigration, a diverse community, and you've got multiculturalism political policies that are often associated with encouraging separation and division. So a um, couple of things. Um, the Enlightenment versus romanticism so the enlightenment philosophies saw progress as civilization overcoming the resistance of traditional cultures with their peculiar superstitions irrational prejudices and outmoded institutions so a rationalist solution to the world forget the mumbo jumbo and superstition uh Here's civilization and progress based on facts and science and that sort of idea. That's that was yeah, the enlightenment. Exactly. The romantics followed that because uh, for the romantics, the steamroller of progress and modernity was what they feared. Uh, enlightenment philosophies tended to see civilization in the singular, whereas romantics understood the culture in the plural. So romanticism did not like the idea of progress uh, steamrolling the diversity of cultures. So that's, uh, that's one part of what we need to understand. And... Um, He says here this idea that the view of culture and identity has transformed the way that many people understand the relationship between equality and difference. Enlightenment viewed equality as requiring the state to treat all citizens in the same fashion without regard to their race, religion or culture. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. That's our thinking. Yeah. Most contemporary multiculturalists, on the other hand, argue that people should be treated not equally despite their differences, but differently because of them. That's a really good summary of where we're at in society at the moment, Scott. So It is, yeah. The enlightened view is that equality requires the state to treat everybody the same without regard for race, religion and culture, whereas multiculturalism argues that people should be treated not equally despite uh, their differences, but differently because of them. So this is 
this is the notion that people will s- disagree with until it's pointed out to them. They they really think that people can be treated differently because of their culture, and I, for one, don't think they should. Mm. Um, that's that idea. And other ones that I liked was uh, uh, the idea that because a cultural practice has existed for a long time, so it should be preserved. Uh, this is a modern version of the naturalistic fallacy, the belief that ought derives from is. So applying that practically, it would be, well, an Aboriginal cultural practice is that we are tied to the land and therefore we must always be tied to the land and we must remain on this land and can't go to other lands. So... Um, uh, so... It's, it's an idea that, that a culture is static and can't change. Uh, he says here, there is something deeply inauthentic about the demand for authenticity. The kind of culture that, cultures that most multiculturalists wish to recognise, affirm and preserve are largely traditional cultures. This is true. Like Most multiculturalists couldn't give a damn about white society. Exactly. Or white culture, yeah. it's about yeah. preserving minority culture. Exactly. Um, uh, there's a constant slippage in multiculturalism talk between the idea of humans as culture-bearing creatures and the idea that humans have to bear a particular culture. I think that's true. Um, I think we see that a lot where people are constricted and wear a culture like a yoke around their neck that's, that's inhibiting them rather than, uh, than the other way around. Um, an idea suggests that every human being is so shaped by a particular culture that to change or undermine that culture would be to undermine the very dignity of that individual It suggests the biological fact of, say, Jewish or Bangladeshi ancestry somehow makes a human being incapable of living well except as a participant of Jewish or Bangladeshi culture. This would only make sense if Jews or Bangladeshis were biologically distinct. In other words, if cultural identity was really about racial difference. I like that idea. You can't be a proper Jew unless you are living a Jewish lifestyle. Um, and a Bangladeshi, unless you're living the traditional Bangladeshi culture, it, you're, you couldn't possibly be living a proper lifestyle outside of that culture. It's a kind of it's a racial it's a racist view of the world. Hmm. Um, and a really interesting one that he goes on about, about um, we don't allow cultures to change. It, we're, well, you know, the regressive left or whatever is incredibly concerned that in culture, cultures might decay or change. But he makes the point that really a culture should be whatever it is that the people at the time are practising. That's what a culture should be. And it should be evolving and changing. Um, so, uh, otherwise, you're really limiting culture to a racial notion that he goes on about. So, 
Uh, and he finishes up with a bit what we he said last time that I repeated. That I said last time, but I'll repeat anyway. Why is this sort of becoming about in our society? This this increased idea and reliance on culture. And he says that. Social solidarity has become increasingly defined not in political terms um, as collective action in pursuit of certain political ideals, but in terms of ethnicity or culture. The question people ask themselves are not so much what kind of society do I want to live in as rather who are we? And the politics of ideology has given way to the politics of identity. And that's why multiculturalism is such a big force at the moment, is we're giving up on the broader what's best for society, how are we going to run this civilization experiment, what can we do to make things better and change, but we're just obsessed with, oh, well, it's part of the culture, but I don't want to change that, better respect that. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Mm. There we go. I really enjoy his work. Recently, we've been having a discussion about whether I'm going to go to hell, and we've talked about the Pope's recent interview where he declared that there is no hell. So here's a little clip from an episode, now I've lost track of it, I think about 69, where um, we discussed the type of people who are making it into heaven, and also it then moves on to a discussion about Lebanon. (laughs) Um, Satirical article from The Onion which just had me chuckling. Um, The title of it is, Report. 50% of heaven's population, just arseholes who beg for forgiveness at the last second. (laughs) (laughs) According to an alarming new report, roughly half the population of heaven is composed of total arseholes who beg for God's forgiveness at the last moment before dying. A survey of celestial records confirmed that one of every two residents of the eternal paradise willfully lived sinful existences and shamelessly committed immoral acts before seeking clemency in the closing seconds of their lives. (laughs) Meanwhile, 28% of the inhabitants of hell had only sinned once or twice, but it never had an opportunity to repent. (laughs) The morality... Yes... The immorality, that's just the moral nonsense of the, of religion exposed in that article. Mm, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Scott, I've mentioned previously that um, my daughter's uh, boyfriend's family are Lebanese. Yes, and Lebanese be, Christians. Yes, going to be meeting them at Christmas time. My daughter is... Scared, mortified. Yes, yes. About terrified what, about what I might say. <laughs> so I figured I'd better bone up on Lebanon and just you know make sure I'm up to speed with everything. And um, it's fascinating, Scott. Um, a few Lebanese. So bear with me, dear listener. Um, a few Lebanese tidbits that you might all need to know if you come because there are a significant Lebanese community in Australia. It's not. There are, yeah. yeah. There's, there's a large number of people that are Lebanese, yeah. yeah. I've had a lot to do with Lebanese over the different times. When I was a lawyer, the firm I worked with was... Um, family partner was Lebanese. So um, there's lots of them around. Hmm. Hmm. Um, this one, this article says that there's actually a law that Lebanese people are not allowed to speak to Jews. And that applies no matter where on earth you are. So... 
If you are a politician or an ambassador or a representative of Lebanon and you're in the United Nations or some other place like that, if there's an Israeli or a Jew beside you, you cannot acknowledge them, you cannot speak to them. If, it's, if there's evidence that you have, you are breaching a law in Lebanon and can be thrown in jail upon your return. If you've got a Israeli stamp in your passport, you can't even get into Lebanon. So mm. they're hot on anti-Semitism in Lebanon. So uh, I'm not a Jew, so I'll be right. Uh, my girlfriend's family can speak to me without fear of the Lebanese government hitting them with some sort of penalty later on. Prison sentence when they go back home. Yeah. Um, uh, and just generally... Basically, the um, Israeli-Arab war, uh, the Palestinians were booted out by the Israelis. Uh, A lot of them ended up in Lebanon and formed the PLO. The uh, PLO was sort of active in the south of Lebanon, would take potshots at uh, Israel. Unfortunately, the PLO were mostly Sunni, the resident Muslim population in the south of Lebanon was Shia. Obviously, they didn't like each other, and mm. the Shia were quite resentful of the PLO. So when Israel actually invaded Lebanon to knock out the PLO, the Shia were actually initially really happy and viewed the Israelis as liberators and were very, very happy with what had been done. From the Shia point of view, the Israelis just got rid of the Sunni um, the awful Sunni um, Muslims. Uh, The problem was that Israel hung around too long and occupied it for too long and outwore their welcome, which then caused the Shia group to um, form Hezbollah. And uh, Hezbollah, uh, being Shia, also got support from the Assad family. So that's sort of a nutshell of PLO and Hezbollah history in, uh, in Lebanon, which... I'd sort of heard those names and all the rest of it, but hadn't really had any context to put them into, Scott. Mm. Mm. Um, Oh, the other thing about Lebanon, this is really interesting. They're roughly uh, one-third, roughly 30% Christian, a Maronite Christian, 30% Sunni, 30% Shia, and about 10% Druze. And amazingly, with their part... 10% Jews, we uh, are Druze, sorry... D-R-U-Z-E. Um, oh, yeah. I've heard of them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so, amazingly, because this country is so evenly divided religiously, the, the parliament actually... Um, if, if you're... Well, put, uh, in terms of the, the head positions... They're reserved for members of specific religious groups. So the president has to be a Maronite Christian. The prime minister has to be a Sunni Muslim. The speaker of the parliament, a Shia Muslim. And the, uh, the deputy prime minister and the deputy speaker have to be Eastern Orthodox. By law, like, you cannot hold that position if you are the wrong religion. That's, really? Yes, okay. part of their constitution. And uh, their parliament, unicameral, 128 seats, 
divided equally between Christians and Muslims. So, um, so uh, you know, where I am in the western suburbs of Brisbane, in my particular electorate, might well be the Muslim electorate. Only a Muslim is allowed to to win that particular electorate. If I'm a Christian, I can vote, but only a Muslim can actually win that electorate. You on the south side of town, you might be in a Christian electorate, and only a Christian yeah. could win that electorate and go on into the into the well, their version of the House of Representatives. So, okay. really strongly tied to your religion. Um, it matters for everything over there. In recent times, there's been discussion about allowing um, a special entry of white South African farmers into Australia. So the next clip from episode 72 is particularly pertinent. An article that I only came across today, Scott, but it was such a good one and I thought I'd throw it straight to the top of the pile. So this one um, is a reference to... Peter Dutton's come out recently talking about immigration and uh, saying Malcolm Fraser made a mistake and he's pointed out that um, uh, accepting immigrants from the Lebanese Civil War to our shores was a mistake, says Peter Dutton. And he he basically refers to some statistics, um, pointing out that of 33 recent terrorism charges, uh, 22 were against people of Lebanese Muslim background. So that's his reason for um, uh, having a problem with the immigrants from the Lebanese Muslim community. However, this article from uh, a blog by Richard Cook, uh, in it he says, um, Obviously this new migration framework will take some time to codify. Weeding out groups that might turn antisocial is not work our nation can just rush into. But on evidence already available, one thing is clear. Letting Catholic priests arrive and operate in Australia has been a calamity. (laughs) He He says, just look at the numbers. There are around 80,000 Lebanese Muslims in Australia. Of these, 22 have been charged with terrorism offences and around one, that's about one in 3,600. He says there are around 3,000 Catholic priests in Australia, plus a few hundred retirees. Of these, an astonishing one in 20 has been charged with child sexual abuse offences. According to the best academic experts, the true number of offenders uh, could be one in 15. It's a compelling argument, Scott. It's a very compelling argument. It really, you know, it, you've got um, <laughs> Dutton on one hand saying that Fraser made a mistake by allowing the numbers of people into the country. And then you've got this here outlining it, saying it's one in 15. Hmm. You know, there's no argument there. You know, it's clear that there's a problem. If you're going to reject people on the basis of a statistical propensity to offend against the laws of our country, mm-hmm. uh, then uh, if you're going to apply that even-handedly across the board, then... Uh, then you've got, to, you've got to exclude Catholic priests. Yes. I suspect most of them are homegrown, though. I, I don't know. Oh, look, I wouldn't be surprised mm. if most of them would be homegrown. But, oh. you know, it's, um, it's a very compelling argument, though, and I think it's one that... Um, mm. 
Well, it's not going to be listened to, but still, and all it's no, a, but it's, it's going to be a fun it, one to use in debate. It's a very fun one to use in the debate. Yes, mm. absolutely. He says he goes on. He says, "I know what you're thinking. What we're all thinking that Catholic priests are about 250 times worse than Lebanese Muslims." He says, uh, as regards Catholic clergy, they offend at least six times the rate of all other Christian denominations combined. Now, this is the part I really like, because we've been talking about celibacy, because the Royal uh, Commission into Institutional Child Abuse over the next few weeks is going to look at what's wrong with the, uh, the system uh, within these groups that's causing this problem. And, you know, obviously we would think celibacy is one of those things. And various yeah. uh, Catholic commentators wrote to the commission saying, don't even think about looking at celibacy. But uh, mm. this guy makes a fantastic argument. He says, some have argued celibacy is a factor in this pattern of offending. Uh, but I'm beginning to think that, church, that this church doctrine is a blessing in disguise. Just imagine the kind of multi-generational crime wave we'd be looking at otherwise. <laughs> oh, this, this is gold. This guy is... It is gold, isn't this, it? Yeah, it's, he is it's good. brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And he finishes off with one other good line, which was uh, further on the end of the article. <clears throat> Evidence of the folly is everywhere, not just in our prisons. Under the rose-tinted policy of coexistence, Catholics were even allowed to play cricket for Australia. Look at how the team is doing now. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, very tongue-in-cheek, but very good. Richard Cook with his blog. So there's a link to that on the website, <clears throat> and um, hopefully he'll come up with more stuff in future. I really... Oh, some really good stuff in there. Um, it is an amazing... Uh, propensity of Catholic priests to offend the laws of the state. So it's an incredible number. Hmm. It is an incredible number. And it, it, what, what's really offensive about it is the uh, lengths that those clergy around them will go to try and cover it up. Hmm. You know, that's what's really offensive is the is the covering up. That's, yes, yeah, inexcusable. I, I think he, in that yeah. article, also made a comment about at least the Muslim community to some extent cooperates with authorities, but the Catholic exactly. Church doesn't. Yeah. The last clip for this episode is from episode two and deals with a Bill of Rights and whether that's a good idea or not. So that was that. Um, now, in my conversation with right-wing Tony, where we got you know, into the nuts and bolts of section 18C, towards the end, yes. Tony mentioned... A Bill of Rights. And, mm. uh, and I, you're going to go back into the profession if it comes off, I, aren't you? Yes. It's, <laughs> well, dear listener, uh, Secular Party did have a policy about supporting a Bill of Rights. And prior to the last election, it was one of the things I managed to get done was actually change that policy so we no longer in, are in support of a Bill of Rights and gave my reasons at the time. But, um, but Queensland, Scott... No mention in the run-up to the previous state election about a Bill of Rights, yet it's, it's gone to committee and, and they've been talking about it. This is what gets me. Like, when I met with the Education Minister to say, oh, what do you think we could change the rules about these religious instruction classes in schools? And she was like, well, 
we didn't uh, we didn't have that as an election platform, so we're not going to do anything about it uh, until after the next election, if we were to do anything at all. Meanwhile, a bill of rights, not discussed at all, and that's on the table and open for potential legislation. Um, Which I find really disturbing because, you know, you've only got one House of Parliament in Queensland. Mm. Which means that, you know, the government does control the numbers. Mm. Therefore, the government can rubber stamp a Bill of Rights. They could. You know. Now, I'm not so offended by a parliamentary Bill of Rights because they are much much more easily uh, amended Mm. should anything be proven to be wrong with it. Mm. So I'm not so much offended by them. But what I want to know, and none of it was mentioned in this article that I got anyway, was that there's... Is it um, subject to amendment by two-thirds majority or something like that, or is it only a simple majority? Haven't seen any detail about that, but... Um, yeah. Because okay. that, that, that would be my main concern with it, is if you have a statutory Bill of Rights... Mm. And then you discover that the courts are being clogged with arguments around certain bill, certain bill of rights. Mm. Then you could make, you could amend that and move on with it. Mm. But um, here's, yeah, the, here's, anyway. the, here's the problem, dear listener, because people think, oh, bill of rights, that's all touchy feely good. Like, what, why would anybody have a problem with a bill of rights? And <laughs> the, the second prob- amendment in the United States. Well, <laughs> but, yeah, there's one. But the problem with a bill of rights is this: that. Rights are fuzzy, vague notions, very abstract, and rights will conflict with other rights. And I'm going to talk about Bob Carr's article on this in a moment. But the, the, the nuts and bolts of it is that uh, these basic human rights actually conflict with each other. And drawing the line as to which one will take precedence over another one, if you're going to have a Bill of Rights, is going to fall to judges to determine Mm. so law will be made by judges in our supreme court rather than um parliamentarians in parliament house and some people might say oh what's better than letting palace chook uh take control of the issue (laughs) but but my response to that is the recent baden clay case where he was charged with murder and He was convicted of murder and it went to appeal to the Supreme Court and they came out with a decision that defied logic altogether. The highest paid, most presumably skillful lawyers in the state made a massive mistake in saying that, oh, the, uh, you know, uh, a conviction for manslaughter was available because maybe he, you know, had a fight with her and accidentally... Uh, killed her, but he didn't raise that in his defence at all. So uh, eventually, it went because to the in high his court. Defense, he was he was saying that he was innocent, wasn't mm. he? In his defence, completely innocent, yeah. knew nothing about it. So he didn't propose that as part of his defence at all. Uh, the it went to the high court, and the high court completely overturned what the Supreme Court said. Thank goodness. So he was mm. eventually convicted of murder. But that just goes to show that judges can make really, really bad decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. that's that was such a high-profile case. They would have been concentrating as hard as they possibly could. And, yeah. And there and, you go. And they completely stuffed it. Mm. You know, they, they completely got it wrong. Mm. 
And it wasn't until it went to the High Court that the, the High Court just looked at it and said, no, this is, this is a murder. Yeah. You know, move on. So, yeah. so that's the first thing. Rights conflict. Finding the boundaries between rights is not going to be easy. And I wouldn't trust our judges to get it right a lot of the time. Second thing mm. is that there's lots of countries around the world that have a Bill of Rights and appalling transgressions of rights continue in those countries. <laughs> so it's no guarantee that you'll have any better, you know, standards of living for people or rights just because you happen to have a Bill of Rights. And we'll talk about some examples of that. And the third thing that people need to understand is that um, you can have a Bill of Rights and then you can have a Human Rights Act. And what some of these Human Rights Act and the one in Victoria operates like this is the uh, Parliament is free to pass a law which might impinge on a human right. But if it does so, it's got to say so in the Act that it fully acknowledges it does. And if it doesn't do that, the Act's invalid. So uh, if it doesn't do that, you could go to the court and say, this Act is actually in breach of some human right. And the court would say, actually, yes, you're right, it is in breach. The Parliament now has to go back and make a full declaration that it understands that it's made that legislation in breach of a human right. And people would say, well, then the Parliament can just do that. But when you've got a bunch of judges saying that something's in breach of a human right, uh, parliamentarians will be reluctant for whatever reason, just scared of public backlash, to pass a law. And, uh, and in states where you've got a Senate, often controlled by a minority, you can't get things through anyway. So... Mm. Uh, our lawmaking will grind to a halt. It'll be a lawyer's picnic if a Bill of Rights is introduced, and it's the last thing that we need. Um, as I say to people, if you've got some human right that you reckon is not being protected at the moment, then propose a piece of legislation and pass it. You don't need an mm. overarching Bill of Rights to do it. And look, I think that's it. You know, it's um, and that is my major objection to the Bill of Rights is it does become a lawyer's picnic. It is a it's a money making exercise for members of your profession. You yep. know, they can make a fortune out of it. Yep, and it's um, achieves nothing. Mm. You know, in fact, the article that we've um, I think the article that we've linked to from the Courier Mail, uh, James Allen is Garrick Professor of Law at the University of Queensland. I mean, there's plenty of lawyers who are against a Bill of Rights. Mm. Um, but um, one of the main advocates against a Bill of Rights in Australia has been Bob Carr, former New South Wales Premier. And Yes, he has been, yes. Uh, an article... Did I send you this one, Scott? I may not have. No, you didn't. Mm. That's fine, yeah. Back from 2009 when they were looking at Bill of Rights at that time. And uh, he gave some examples and said, well, uh, Britain... Uh, didn't have a Bill of Rights, but abolished slavery in 1772 with a court decision based on common law. The US had a Bill of Rights, but nearly 100 years later, uh, slavery was still valid. Like, mm. if a Bill of Rights can't stop slavery, well, you know, mm. what, what can it do? Exactly, um, yeah. Some of the least democratic countries have freedoms in their constitutions, like Zimbabwe and Sudan. Um, you get conservative elements wanting to insert a right to property as a human right 
and that ends up with you know um, uh, all sorts of complications. Um, if you have a right to property, then uh, a Labor government might want to stop clearing of native vegetation on farms. They won't be allowed to. It'll be a breach of a right to property of the of the um, of the landholder. So. A uh, couple of other examples he gave are um, in Canada, uh, the Supreme Court, I mean, freedom of speech. Who could argue against the freedom of speech? Bill of Rights says everyone's entitled to freedom of speech. Well, in Canada, in the Supreme Court, they interpreted that to mean that tobacco advertising could be resumed even near schools. This is the murky water you get into. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and you'd have to, if you were going to, if you were going to go down this road, you'd have to say that corporations can't have the same natural rights as human beings. Yes, you know, you, you would have to somehow do that so that corporations couldn't then advertise cigarettes and that type of stuff. Yeah, well, so a human rights act where yes. But then a lot of people's businesses are in a company form, so yes. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So anyway, a right to privacy can conflict with freedom of speech. Uh, Freedom of expression can conflict with a right to pristine environment. Uh, These rights just conflict all over the place, and if we let judges decide where to draw the line, we're just asking for trouble, and in the meantime we're just asking to pay a bunch of lawyers' fees along the way. Yeah, exactly, and I would hope that Palaszczuk would have the good sense to turn away. Mm. Well, apparently, but apparently the committee it doesn't look like it. Yeah, the committee yeah. looking at it, uh, the Labor members all were in favour, and the Liberal Nationals were against. So exactly, so it's it really is a nonsense, you know. Mm. You know, you're not going to be able to keep the Tories out of office forever, mm. and when they get back in, they could just repeal it. So mm. it's it is a it is a nonsense. Al- yes, although in Victoria, uh, apparently it was introduced under Labor. Liberals said That's they right. would repeal it and never did, and then they didn't. Yes, yeah. yeah. And there you go, dear listener. That concludes this special episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, the Twelfth Man, the Velvet Glove, myself. We should be back next week for our normal panel discussion, and we'll talk to you then. Bye. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And When you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think is a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe (laughs) on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you... Go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth 
more than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.